Welcome back to Franklin Covey's podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. In fact, now releasing two episodes weekly. I want to thank the hundreds of researchers, thought leaders, business titans, experts, scientists, warriors, generals, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, people that have suffered some often unspeakable trauma that have lived to tell about it and write about it to come on here, all with the unifying purpose of making you, our listeners, our viewers, a better leader, whether it's a better leader in your organization as a leader of a team or leader of a company, leader of your own one-person organization. Perhaps you're looking just to be a better leader in your family or your community. We're honored that you're listening and joining us now twice a week, episodes released every Tuesday and Friday, both in audio and video. I'm Scott Miller. I'm the host. You also know me as a prolific writer for Franklin Covey, including the recently released books, Master Mentors from HarperCollins, 10 books in the series where each year with the the permission of 30 of my favorite guests, I write a new Master Mentors volume, kind of like Chicken Soup for the Leadership Soul, where I pluck out 30 of what I think are the most transformational insights and write them in the Master Mentors series, now available in audio, digital print, and video books from Lit video. Who knows, maybe today's guest might be agreed to be featured in Volumes 4 or Volumes 5. You know him as the winner of the Crystal Ball. Now, he's done a few other things as well, but his name is Donny Osmond, actor, producer, author, father, friend, thought leader, entertainer, and, and, and constant master of the self-reinvention to remain relevant for five-plus decades. Donny Osmond, what an honor. Welcome to On Leadership. Scott, how are you? That, you know, you read that just uh, like I wrote it. So thank you for that nice introduction. Well, that's an insult because I'm an extemporaneous speaker, Donnie, but I appreciate the compliment nonetheless. <laughs> hey, what an honor to have you. We had a chance to build some rapport off camera, and I asked you to tone it down a little bit for the nature of what is the, you know, the decorum that is this podcast. So we'll see if you can maintain that note. Honestly, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> hey, it's that? an honor to have you. Honor to have you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Thanks, Scott. You and I have, you and I have crossed paths uh, a couple of times from distance in my 27 years in Utah, and it's an honor today to have you on this podcast as we have a chance to kind of delve into your journey, which has been remarkable from every angle. Lots of successes, I'm guessing a couple of setbacks. We'll talk about maybe any of those you want to share today. Donnie, for the last person in the world who may not be familiar with your journey, would you generously take some time, rewind 50 plus years ago? You've had some amazing experiences on television, your Vegas show with your family. You've managed to survive what is a brutal industry and thrive and raise a healthy family. Take as long as you'd like, and would you literally rewind and remind everybody about what you've been privileged to accomplish in your journey? That is a difficult question to answer because, well, I guess I could comb my hair. Um, I can't encapsulate the entire thing because I've been in show business for 60 years, but I decided to put a show together that's pretty much all-inclusive. That's my show here in Vegas. It's uh, so fortunate. It's an award-winning show now, so we've been going for two years, and it's everything I've done uh, from professionally at five years old to the current uh, uh, residency here in Las Vegas. But, you know, you use the word setback. I don't think... You can have success unless you have setbacks because you learn from your mistakes in order to have success. And in fact, in my show in Las Vegas, 
I do a rap, if you can believe that. I came up with this idea to to do kind of like Hamilton, where everything is in rhyme. And it's it, it starts, it all began back in Utah. I was four years old, started singing with my brothers, and the sound was like gold. So my folks took a leap and said, what the hey, we got to get these monsters out to California. And it goes faster and faster, 10 minutes long. And uh, everything I talk about, you see in pictures, in video, and everything. And it's it's pretty amazing. It's like, this is your life every night. And the reason I bring that up is because I didn't want to put this rap together with just the highlights. I talk about the lowlights. I mean, one of the worst things that ever happened to me is I went to Broadway in, in 81, 82, something like that. I did a show called Little Johnny Jones. Scott, you're going to love this one. I opened and closed the same night. <laughs> and it, it was devastating. I mean, you know, you make a mistake, you kind of cover that, put it up in your attic, and nobody th thinks about it. I mean, we're still talking about it all these years later because it's in the history of my life, a huge failure. But in hindsight, Scott, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it was coming off the Donnie and Marie show. And, you know, that kind of left me with such a really goody goody image. Uh, but it was a very powerful, popular show all over the world. But it pigeonholed me in a certain thing. I mean, I, became, I came off of Puppy Love and all that kind of stuff, the Teeny Bop Bridal, into the television show that left me with this really silly, kind of Sonny Bono type of um, image. And I thought, well, I'm going to conquer Broadway. And boy, it slapped me across the face. And the reason why it was good for me is because I realized more than any other time in my life, in order to have longevity, you've got to reinvent. You cannot rest on your laurels. And despite the fact that the show was, a, it was an amazing show, we stopped the show, if you can believe this, opening night, closing night, we stopped the show three times for standing ovations. The problem was my name. The problem was my image. The reviewer, Frank Rich, I think is what was his name? I, I can't recall now, ripped me apart, not just the show, but me personally. And after reading that scathing interview or the review, I realized I've got to start over. I've got to completely re reinvent myself. And it took me about seven, eight years to go back into the studio, come up with new sound, new, new uh, image, everything. And that's when Soldier of Love came out in 1989. In fact, they called it the comeback of the 80s. I'm going to jump around all over the place, so this isn't chronological. When they called, when um, Dina Katz, she was the, the lady that casted me in, um, or booked me on Dancing with the Stars. She's also the one that booked me on The Masked Singer. I was the very first Masked Singer. I started that whole franchise as the Peacock. She called me up and says, Donna, you're the first person I'm calling because uh, I really want you on this show. Let me explain what it is. Uh, everyone is going to be wearing masks. Uh, so everybody's on the same playing field and it's strictly your talent. Nobody will know who you are. So there's no prejudice. I said, stop right there. I get the joke. I'm on. I'm in. Book me. And in fact, they, she said, this is fantastic. We have three costumes ready to go designs. There's the monster. And there's the alien and there's a peacock. And she sent me pictures and I said, peacock, without a doubt. In fact, it's quite funny because in my show in Vegas, every once in a while, I get little teeny kids in there uh, that want to see the peacock. 
They don't know anything about puppy love. They don't know who Marie is. They don't even know the Austin brothers won Bad Apple puppy love. What's that? We want to see the peacock. In fact, it's quite interesting. McDonald's just uh, had a huge promotional thing about you, you buy a Happy Meal and you get these little uh, mass singer characters. Apparently, the peacock is the most sought after um, little character. And that's how this, this one little kid the other night, the one I'm thinking of, was just enamored by the little peacock twice. I got to see the peacock and was watching me on Hulu and the whole bit. And a whole new generation discovered me because of I was the peacock. That, that's just one of many, many things. And sorry, I'm, I'm just skipping around all the time. That's the way my brain works. I just go back and forth. There's no uh, li linear thinking in my life. But it's all about reinventing yourself, Scott. And any company, any brand, and we know which ones have made big mistakes in trying to rebrand lately. Um, you got to be careful with your rebranding re because you have to know your audience. You don't want to alienate them. I'll give you a great story. Back in 80, early 80s, uh, Michael Jackson and myself, we had the same publicist. And I said, Ron, how, how can I get back on the charts? How can I become relevant again? Michael's doing it. I want to do it. And he said, okay, I got a plan. You're going to go overseas. And when you come back through immigration, they're going to open up your suitcase and there'll be all kinds of drugs in your suitcase. And you'll get busted for all of this drug paraphernalia. You will have so much street cred overnight. You'll be in the front of magazines and newspapers and, and everywhere in the tabloids. And the name Donny Osmond will be extremely popular and talked about. It'll be the, uh, the water cooler conversation. And the kind of mind that I have, I don't throw any idea out. So I said, let me go think about this. And I went home and I, I went to bed and I started thinking about this and thought, what am I thinking? There's no, yes, this would really, really make me relevant. Overnight, extremely popular. But what are my kids going to say someday? What does that do to my wife? What are my grandkids going to say to me someday? Grandpa, you really sold out. For what? Five minutes of fame? So I decided to do it the hard way <laughs> with my music. And because we have a lot of people, a lot of artists nowadays, um, not just artists, but companies that will do something, especially in social media, where they just want to get likes. They want to get fodder going. They just want to get their name out there. And they do crazy things and destroy their brand because they don't know their audience. So I thought, I will alienate so many people if I do this drug thing. And it'll bite me in the shorts for the rest of my life. So I'm going to do it with my music. So Scott, I went back to the studio. I was writing. I, I did demos for people, for Pete's sakes. Here I am, filling stadiums and arenas. And just a few years later, I'm now singing demos for people. Because that's the only way I could get my talent back out there. There's two, again, sorry, going everywhere. There's two factors, particularly in show business, that you have to grab and you have to convince that you're a viable entity. Number one, the public. You have to, you have, to have a product that the public likes and they can trust. 
But the second one, and probably equally as important, if not more, the industry. And that's what I didn't have. I had the public because, you know, the Don Amory show was popular. The brand was known and I didn't want to destroy that. But the industry didn't like Donnie Osmond's image. In fact, I asked Michael just before Thriller came out. I remember uh, going over to his house. I said, Mike, how do I get back on the charts? Because I was one of the first ones he played Thriller, the, the album to. And I, I thought, this is unbelievable. This is going to be amazing. And I said, Mike, how do I do it? And he told me something, Scott, that offended me big time. He said, your name is poison. You got to change your name. And I thought, that was such an insult. I mean, I didn't tell him that. I said, well, thank you for your advice. See ya. But here's the interesting thing. When Soldier of Love came out in 1989, as I referred to, they, they called it the comeback of the 80s. This happened. This wasn't a, a concocted uh, marketing plan. This actually happened naturally and organically. Radio stations got the record and they loved the music. In fact, it was PLJ, the number one pop station at the time in New York City. They said, uh, we love the record, so we're going to test it. But we can't tell anybody who it is because we're embarrassed to say we're playing Donnie Husband music. They did me a favor and they did exactly what Michael Jackson predicted and, 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 uh, and said I should do. Don't use your name. So I was the mystery artist in 1989 for Soldier of Love. Radio stations, this is long before social media. So, I mean, nowadays, if one, people pick, uh, one person picks up on something, the world knows it. Well, they didn't back then. So I went from station to station, P1, P2, P3 markets. And I worked my tail off going to all these markets, doing this, revealing who the mystery artist was. And it became a massive hit. But I didn't stop there. I released something uh, called Sacred Emotion, completely different genre, rather than trying to do the same thing that other artists do. Well, let's jump. You know, we had a hit with this song. Let's replicate it. No, you don't do that. You, if the, the public expects a right turn, you go left. Give them something unexpected. So I released Sacred Emotion. Became a, a hit. Then I decided to jump back into Broadway because I promised myself I'm going to redeem myself from my fiasco of opening and closing the same night. Signed a six-month contract to do Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Six years later, I said, I got to get rid of this loincloth and do something else. <laughs> so anyway, that's a, a long-winded answer to, uh, to your question. But it's all about reinventing yourself, doing things that you're passionate about, and making sure that is the best possible product you can put out there. Donnie, one of our previous guests, who you may not even know, is a famous author. Her name is Whitney Johnson. And she wrote a very famous book called Disrupt Yourself. Was a colleague of Clayton Christensen's and is now a, a, a leadership coach and um, speaker. And in her book, Disrupt Herself, she has this theory she calls the S-curve of learning. And in essence, one of the insights of it is recognizing when we become complacent in our profession and our talents and our growth and stretching ourselves. And she mentions that sometimes our complacency is noticed by others before we notice it because we've, we've conquered the thrill of the excitement or the challenge of a task and now we can kind of do the job in our sleep 
And we don't mean to be lazy. We don't mean to, you know, phone it in. But others notice that in us. And it's important that as we're disrupting ourselves, we become more aware of when is that S-curve kind of the low point. I'm guessing you have some insight on how you have disrupted yourself like you've shared. Any other insights you would share around when you know it's time to reinvent yourself? Well, this is very interesting. It's, it's called this S-curve that Whitney's talking about. It's actually called the sigmoid curve. And um, I've studied this philosophy a lot. And disruption is the key to success because if you become complacent, and the audience will become complacent too, and it becomes old, especially nowadays in social media. You want something new, something fresh all the time. Um, and even in my show, it's just nonstop. I mean, yes, you have to have a curve, a beginning, a middle, and an end. But in within those that that arc, we call the arc, um, you have to have dynamics where you're constantly sigmoid curve. You're constantly doing that S curve, disrupting yourself, where the audience says, oh, that was great. And if you do give them the same thing, oh, okay, well, that was the same. Oh, that was the same. And the person, you've lost them. So what you do is you give them something, you hit them hard at the beginning. Now, I'm using the analogy of, 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 a, of a show, but it works in everything. You hit them hard, you bring it down, and then, you, then you're endearing with the audience. Then you talk to them. And, and then, boom, hit them with something really cool. And, and then you, it's the, the variations of this sigmoid curve, this S-curve that Whitney is talking about, disrupting the brain constantly. Because when I put on a show, I take people on a journey. I call it a journey. In fact, when I was doing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, my director, the, the great, the late... Um, Stephen Pimlot was a great Shakespearean actor. He's the one that directed me. And he said something that stuck with me. It will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, the theater, and you can use the word term theater in anywhere, a presentation, whatever. The theater is a place where people come to dream in public and you're in charge of that dream. Now, when you, when you analyze that, if you're in charge of a dream, and you're doing the same thing, and you're not disrupting things. Think back on some of your dreams. It's like up and down. It's a, it grabs your attention. When you're reading a book, it's all the variations and the contrast of, of the yin and yang of a story that grabs your attention. So disrupts. Whitney, um, I've got to get this book because just the title alone, disrupt. what's it called? Disrupting Yourself? Disrupt Yourself, yes. Disrupt Yourself. I've got to read this book because that's my life. I disrupt myself constantly. Um, and it's funny that I should be talking you know, with, with you guys because I started this whole thing with a Franklin planner. I used to call it Frederica. I'd have the, I'd carry it out. It was, you know, the big book kind, you know, I didn't carry the little one. I carry the big one because I would write in it all the time. Cross references and back thing, you know, the, the, the whole system that Stephen came up with. That's what helped me with time management, not just time management, but consolidating your thoughts, putting them somewhere on a piece of paper and then referring back to them and then expanding upon that idea, disrupting yourself with what if I did this and what if I did that without destroying your audience, your core audience, but totally disrupting things all the time. My day is like that. What can I do now? And what can I do here? But then taking time to relax and calm your brain and then just say, okay, let's disrupt something again. It's, it's the key of success, in my opinion, is this disruption. 
I think it's one of the strengths also of Franklin Covey. I wasn't going to say this, but you set me up well for this because I've been privileged to be associated with this company for 27 years, and we started as a time management company, and we sold millions and millions of planners, divested that from the company 15 years ago, now the world's most trusted leadership development firm, right? Focusing on executing strategy, building a high-trust culture, still focus and discipline of being a great leader. I think the company has also disrupted and reinvented themselves to make their brand more relevant. Donnie, have you, without maybe naming names or naming brands, do you have any examples of people in the industry that you think did this well? So we have millions of listeners that are captivated right now thinking, how do I make myself relevant like Donny Osmond has for 60 years? Now, not all of us were childhood Well, I'll, I'll go to my friend Michael Jackson. I mean, he was a perfect disruptor. I mean, we came out with Off the Wall. Nobody's expecting it. Um, that, that, kind of, that kind of, of course, you know, they had the groove and all that kind of stuff. Clear back to ABC, the Jackson 5. I mean, they, they had it. Um, but he really reinvented himself. Went a little too far, obviously. I mean, it's, it's very subjective on, on, on the latter part of his career. And, and very unfortunate ending. Uh, but I had a chance to, to know him very, very well growing up. And he was constantly thinking, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? So that, he, he probably the first one. Um, George Michael is another disruptor. You know, wake me up before you go, go. Da, 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 like a yo, yo. That is the biggest teeny bopper song you can possibly imagine. Huge. Took those guys, two guys to uh, to uh, the stratosphere. Wait, hold on, hold on. This might be the most iconic moment of my podcasting career. I just had both inspirationally and a little bit creepily Donny Osmond serenading me to, to George Michael's Wham. Now, this is a seminal moment, Donny. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but, but it's it's Keep true. Going. I mean, you talked about disrupting his, his life. Um Justin Bieber, there's another one, you know. Baby, baby, oh, my baby, baby, baby. Donny Osmond. And they called it puppy love. Wait, are you putting Donny Osmond in there with the Biebs? I mean, come on. Think about it. In fact, I wrote a song about him when he came out with Lonely. You saw his video, Lonely? Uh, um, uh, well, for fear of incriminating myself, no, let's go with that. Okay, you, you should check it out because... As I watch that, if anybody could relate to that video, it's me. It's like, I live that. And um, I know what that feeling feels like of being, you know, enamored on stage. And then you go back to your hotel room and you're lonely. Um, I'm thank goodness I found this sweet little girl named Debbie Glenn, who I married at 20. She was 19. She removed that loneliness factor out of my life. But anyway, after I saw the, the video Lonely, I thought, and I was right in the middle of writing this 65th album of mine that I just released. And I thought, hmm, there's a concept. I, so I wrote a song called Life After Loneliness. Life After Loneliness. It's not a ballad. It's just a hard driving song that there is life after loneliness. loneliness. And... Um, I don't know where I'm taking this. I'm going off on another rabbit hole. Wait, did you say 65 albums? Yeah, 65. Wait, not 65 songs. You've released how many songs in total? Oh, I have no idea. But what's interesting about that, when I put this show together in Vegas here, 
uh, I decided, okay, which album of the 65 do I put in the show? Um, because there's going to be people that want to hear something from the from from all the different albums, depending upon the genre or the era that they grew up in. So I put all 65 albums in the show. There's a segment, and it took me a long time to figure out the technology and, and exactly how to execute this idea. But it's my favorite part of the show, and it, and it become has become a fan favorite. So for about 15 minutes or so in the show, I turn the show over to the audience, and it's all improv. Anyone in the audience can pick any song I've ever recorded on any of the 65 albums, and we do it just like that. It is so much fun, and it's challenging for the band. It's fun for all of us because the show changes every night. Donnie, how do you decide what you do, right? Dancing with the Stars, Masked Singer, you've been an Entertainment Tonight host, variety shows, Vegas, uh, game show host. When do you say no, other than let's pack your suitcases with drugs to make you relevant? <laughs> From someone who now is managed to be uh, relevant 60 plus years later, what do you say no to? Oh, that's a good question, Scott, because there's a lot of opportunities that come across your desk. And I have so many things on my desk that I would love to do, but you have to prioritize. I go back to my Franklin planner, time management. And I say, okay, how much time do I have available for my career? Because now I've got to make sure that I don't lose the most important part of my life, and that's my family. So I have turned down so many things that uh, I would have loved to have done, but just wasn't was unable to. One of the things I had to turn down was Andrew Lloyd Webber asked me, and this is after our relationship started with uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He he made he decided that I would be the one to be in the movie and. It was such an honor and all this kind of stuff. I was in Toronto and I was doing Joseph and it was a, a, a massive hit. And just across the street, they were doing uh, the Phantom of the Opera, obviously his show as well. And so just for the fun of it, I said, I want to go see if I could sing that. So I, I booked a rehearsal with the music director and he said, oh yeah, let's do this. It'd be fun. And there's a there's part of the song, this one song I can't remember. You it's a very bombastic, and then it goes into nighttime darkens, softens the sensation. And he said he stopped playing the piano. I said, let's do that one more time, and we we did it again. I sang this bombastic song and transitioned to nighttime he said oh my goodness this is exactly the way andrew expected it to happen i mean that's the phantom he's this this little boy in this man's body he's a twisted man and he's going crazy with this song but then he reverts to this little child and he sings this song and he was recording this he sent it to andrew and he, andrew heard it and he, he he called me up and said I have a six-week opening engagement for Phantom in the West End. Will you do it? And I couldn't do it because I was involved in something else contractually. And I, But someday I would love to take up that opportunity. Anyway, the point I'm making is there's so many wonderful things I'd love to do, but sometimes you just have to draw the line and say you can't. But to answer your core question, when do I say no? Other than time, right? Is I have 
My philosophy is that I surround myself with very, very smart people. And as soon as I figure out that they're not smarter, they're not, they're telling me to put drugs in my bag, I get rid of them. And because they're no use to me because their intelligence and their, their ability to think properly and wisely without ruining my core audience has gone. I have, I work in threes. Sorry, I'm going to get a little philosophical here, but I work in threes. It's kind of like the Godhead. Um, I understand NASA uses three computers uh, to 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 uh, verify a launch. It's better than a 50-50 of two. Um, so three is a very important thing. So if you look at a triangle, I'm at the top of the triangle. And then I have my business manager. Then I have my professional manager. Unless all three points of that triangle are green, I don't do it. And that way I can avoid any emotional decision. In fact, it just happened not too long ago. I came up with a, an idea of something to do here in Las Vegas for my show for a promotional thing. I was emotionally involved in this concept. I thought, this is, this is the best idea since sliced bread. Well, I didn't get the other two green lights. So guess what? We didn't do it. And it's a good thing because it was a better decision not to do it. So I work in threes. I surround myself with very, very smart people. Not a lot because I want to avoid groupthink, which is, can, be, can be dangerous uh, and biased. But ultimately, it comes from here. I can have all the advisors I want, but it comes from here. And you have to trust yourself, especially, you know, I've been in the business for 60 years. Hopefully, I know kind of what I'm doing. Uh, I kind of know what will work and won't, won't, won't work, won't work on stage. In fact, a guy by the name of Raj Kapoor, I don't know if that name means anything to you. He is the best in the business. I was very fortunate to get him. It was during COVID. And uh, he came to see uh, my show with Marie in Vegas. And afterwards, I played him a couple songs that I was working on for the new album. He said, Donnie, this is not just an album. This is a show. I said, what do you mean? And my manager, Jim Mori, was there with me. He said, this is a show about your life. And that spawned a spark in my mind. I said, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time. One thing led to another. Raj Kapoor is the guy that does the Grammys, the Oscars, the Emmys. Uh, you want it done right, get, Oscar, uh, get Raj Kapoor. And Tom Southern, he brought Tom, who's one of the greatest lighting directors on the planet. He lit this thing. In fact, we just got the award for best production in Las Vegas. Best production. I mean, you know how many great production shows are here in Las Vegas? And we were able to get that award thanks to the best people surrounding me. And that's my philosophy. Surround yourself with the most talented people. But then it has to come from here. They'll give you the ideas. You've got to trust them, but ultimately trust yourself. Trust your gut. Don't act on it you know, immediately, but most of the time, instinctively, your gut feeling is the right thing to do. And that's how I say no, is I listen to my advisors, and then ultimately, at the end of the day, I listen to my gut. Donnie, last question. Our time is ending. Uh, one of the things I have heard about you is that when on occasion you go and keynote a large corporate event or an association in between your other creative endeavors, is that you're known as 
a relentless preparer, like attention to detail in terms of architecting what you're going to say, how it will or will not further the association's theme or the corporate goals is that. I've heard on several occasions, one of your reputations is as this like indefatigable preparer. Now, obviously, you don't need to go give more speeches, but the fact is you don't phone it in, is that at the peak of your career, you still are preparing and orchestrating, choreographing what you're going to say at what sequence as if it was perhaps your first speech. I know that is true because people have told me that about you when they have hired you to speak at their conferences. Riff on that for a moment because I think that is an important leadership principle for all of us to come to work every day as if it is our first day, not our 800th day or our 4,000th day or our first speech, not our 90th speech. Or I'm guessing in your Vegas show, you've had how many nights in Vegas? Any, any clue? No clue. I mean, thousands. I've been playing Vegas since I was seven. Right. So in this last show, I mean, thousands of shows, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. I, I'm guessing that principle holds true that, are you on tonight when we're taped? Are you on tonight in Vegas? No, I'm, I'm off for the next month, and we start our summer tour, which I must say, just to promote it, uh, go to Donnie.com. I may be bringing, and I'm bringing the Las Vegas show on the road, all the dancers, all the production team, so it is Vegas on the road. So Donnie.com, I, I came up with Donnie.com when I invented the internet back in the day. Yes, thank you, Al. <laughs> um, but address that Al. point around this brand that you've developed as being an um, unrelentingly meticulous preparer for everything you do. Well, there's two things that go through my mind when you say that. Yes, I do prepare constantly. But at some point in time on stage, something's bound to happen that um, you're not prepared for. So in my mind, I, you know, I just come up with all different kinds of scenarios. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? So I have this arsenal of avenues that I can go down regardless of what takes place. But sometimes someone will say something in the audience or request or, or something will happen that you're not prepared for. Perfect example. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I'm in Chicago and it's opening night. All the reviewers are there. It's the pressure is on my shoulders. I mean, it's just everybody's shoulders, basically, because it has been hyped. It has been touted as the, the greatest show you'll see opening night. The main reviewer wasn't there. She broke her leg. And we thought, well, the rest of the viewers are here, so let's do a great job. It was an amazing show. We got some good reviews, but the main person wasn't there. About two weeks later, she said, I'm coming to review the show. So we're all geared up for this, you know, excitement to, be, to do the, the best show we possibly can. There's an effect where the set opens up like this, and it's in a, it, it, it kind of looks like a pyramid coming out of the ground. And we're all behind, and we're doing these dance, dance steps and things, and it's in a, a reveal. It jams. So all you see are these feet dancing. <laughs> Obviously, we got to stop the show because it's a, it's a cataclysmic um, failure. So uh, Di Woodrow, I can't believe I remember her name. Our stage manager gets on the PA. She, says, she was such a nervous lady. Ladies and gentlemen, we obviously have a problem on stage. we got to stop the show now. And, and, and as soon as we fix it, we'll resume. We all go off stage. I'm backstage right. And I'm hearing the murmur, murmur, murmur from the audience. 
And this big main reviewer is in the audience. I said, of all shows, Murphy's Law is kicking me in the teeth. So I walk up to Die because I feel the pressure as the star of the show. I got to do something. I said, Die, give me a mic and a spotlight. She turns around, Mr. Osmond, we got this under control. I said, Die, give me a mic and a spotlight now. I said, Yes, Mr. Osmond. Scott, I grab the mic. I walk on from stage right from the wings. Spotlight hits me. I have no idea what I'm going to do. All I know is I've got to be on stage doing something. I get out there and for a half hour, I'm telling stories. I'm singing songs. The orchestra follows me as best they can. The entire cast comes out and they sit in the aisles to watch this. And, and, and there's hammering going on behind me. It's funny. We're cracking jokes. The audience is laughing and having a good time. We're singing songs. Finally, they said, Mr. Osmond, we're ready to start. We start the show over again. The next day in the paper, crossing my fingers, this reviewer said, I loved both shows. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I think things through. Yes, I know what I'm going to. Yes, I prepare. But it, sometimes you just have to shoot from the hip. And that's where experience comes in handy. You know how to get out of a situation. Donnie Osmond, how much did you pay Mark or, or Donnie Wahlberg for Donnie.com? That's a great, that's a great <laughs> domain. Does he spell it with an I or an I, I E know. or a Y? I don't know. Yeah. Other, than, other than taking the Vegas show on the road where you can visit Donnie.com and learn more about that, what else is going on in your life? What's next for you? I'm working on my 66th album. This one is going to be very unique. This is probably the most advanced album I've ever done. And that's all I'm gonna say about it because it's, it, it's so unique that not very many people can pull this kind of an album off. Donnie, I'm gonna text uh, Whitney Johnson and have her sign a book, Disrupt Yourself, and send it to you so you can read that on the Will web. you please do that? I, I would love that. I will. I would appreciate Donnie that. Donnie Osmond, you're a class act. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Best of luck on the road as well. Thanks, pal. Great talking to you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.